Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Today, um, originally, I was supposed to give a talk on part of the Mountains and River Sutra, where Mike will be giving the longer teaching throughout the week, but today I would have been talking about that. But Rose and I agreed that it didn't seem appropriate to teach that text, nor quite honestly would we have been able to, to do so in, in the amount of time we had to prepare. So really deep teaching if you had time to be with it. But I thought that I would honor that by uh, working with another teaching on mountains and waters. Uh, the famous saying of Sagan Ishin. Before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and waters as waters. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to a point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and waters are not waters. But now that I have got the very substance, I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains once again as mountains and waters once again as waters. So first, mountains are mountains, waters are waters. Then mountains are not mountains. Something happened, waters are not waters. But then once again, mountains are mountains and waters are waters. I really, really love that teaching. I kind of want to somehow make it a tattoo. <laughs> um, uh, it seems, and of course to a certain extent, it's talking about stages and goals. But of course we also know there are no stages and there are no goals. And that's what we're chanting each morning, right? With the Heart Sutra, no path, no wisdom, no gain. And so this teaching is maybe more similar to the Yamas and Niyamas and the Yoga Sutras in the yoga tradition, or more similar to the eight appropriate actions of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, where there's these different things and they all just, they interweave with each other. And there are parts that we keep coming back to again and again and again and fine-tuning our understanding and practice of them. And each time we come into one of the teachings, they're new and they're different. 
so we can hear this teaching perhaps more like the ethics, more like guidelines, ways to encourage us to approach a situation. Tips for practice. Um, so mountains are mountains, waters are waters. So there's a way of just seeing that at face value, that he's just describing how we see the world with our um, condition, our cultural conditioning, um, our family conditioning, our habits, our ancestry, our stories. And it's just describing the way things are before we start to have a practice. Or maybe we can dig a little bit deeper. I don't think he was wasting words. Um, so to dig into that, I want to start with a poem by David Budbill called The Three Goals. Which, and I, I don't know, I've never heard him speak about his crafting of this poem, but to me it seems like an ode to this teaching. The first goal is to see the thing itself in and for itself, to see it simply and clearly for what it is. No symbolism, please. The second goal is to see each individual thing as unified, as one, with all the other 10,000 things. In this regard, a little wine helps a lot. <laughs> the third goal is to grasp the first and second goals to see the universal and the particular simultaneously. Regarding this one, call me when you get it. <laughs> So then this idea of mountains are mountains, David is transformed into see it clearly for what it is. And then suddenly it becomes a really important, really simple, really hard teaching to see it clearly for what it is. My partner, Ty, and I love to rock climb. And we're actually going to go on a rock climbing trip after this retreat. Um, there are, as you can imagine, if you haven't rock climbed outside yourself, um, multiple moments that are scary. And often it occurs in conditions when you're kind of really in the higher up parts, or when there's like a ledge and you have to climb up and under and over it. Um, or when the mountain doesn't really seem to have enough places for you to put your hands and your feet than you would like it to be. And you usually know that they're coming, right? Like you're in some ways climbing it because they're there. Uh, you can look above you and see these things are going to be there. You know it's going to be scary what you're embarking on in some way, which is kind of like embarking on retreat, right? We know it's not going to be easy, and there might be scary parts or challenging parts. Um, and every retreat is like that. Perhaps this one was a little bit more for some of us. The actual experience of being scared up there, though, um, you can't see coming. Uh, because you it shows up, how it shows up on that climb, um, at that moment. And how you meet it will determine sort of everything which is also like being on retreat. And in these moments, you ask yourself, or I ask myself, is this fun? <laughs> <laughs> is what I'm choosing to do really what I want to be doing right now? 
um, because I thought that's why I was here, and now I'm not so sure. Which <laughs> is also like retreat. <laughs> um, the last time I was at one of these moments, it was one of the ledge moments, and um, I got really scared. And then I looked down, and I saw this part of the climb that was like so beautiful and so good, and I loved how it was, and everything was just in the right place. And I was like, I wish that was what was happening right now. <laughs> and then I looked up, and I was like, oh, God. And then I remembered, so um, my partner always climbs first, and so I saw in my mind, I remembered what he looked like going all over the edge, and I was like, oh, God, like, I don't, I just don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and I was just kind of frozen. Um, and I had just layered, right, all of these other things on top of what was going on. And it was one of many times that having a practice has been helpful as a climber. And I just closed my eyes, was breathing. And then I opened my eyes and just looked at the mountain right in front of me, which is like right there, and just saw that mountain, that little piece. And I started saying to myself out of nowhere, and I don't know why, but I started saying to myself, climb the climb in front of you. And I was like, okay. And I started breathing, and I was like, climb the climb in front of you. And I dropped all of those other layers away, and it was just right the rock, climb the climb in front of you, and breathing. And then what happens when you do that with climbing, which I think also is what happens when you do that with life, is that you realize that you already have everything you need to meet that moment. That I could trust my body, and my body would just do what it needs to do, which it does that I, I could trust myself. And it turned out that it was scary, and it was also fun. <laughs> and this is mountain is mountain practice. Or as Dogen would say, don't go forward, don't go backward, don't stand still. Keep climbing the climb in front of you without adding anything extra. But that's not to say don't plan. I think we hear teachings all the time about be here now, just show up, don't worry about anything else, let it go. But then if you're like me, there's a little voice that's like, but wait, I have a life. <laughs> um, so Ty and I, we plan the night before. We pack our bag with all the gear that we know we're going to need. When we get to the base of the mountain, we plan what gear we're going to need to wear on us, how we're going to have to go up, the different things that will happen. But then when we're climbing, we just climb the climb in front of you. And if you're a planner or someone who's in charge of taking care of others, um, an organizer or a worrier, maybe you can be a bit firmer with yourself with when it's time to plan and when it's time to climb the climb in front of you. And if you're on the other end of the spectrum, maybe make a date with planning, <laughs> um, with deciding how things are going to change. Make a ritual about it, make it fun. And if somehow you're like totally balanced and don't go to any of those extremes, call me when you get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So be here while you're here. And don't leave before you're gone. Remember that Michael taught us that gate gate does mean gone, gone. And it also means arriving, arriving. So keep arriving. So that you can really be with what is, right? This moment. Dropping your idea of what it is again and again. Because if you have an idea of what something is, you've already missed it. So you see, first, let's say, a mountain. And you see a mountain, and maybe even picture seeing a mountain that you know. And maybe you're looking at that mountain, and its name pops up. So you drop that, but you keep looking at the mountain. And then you're looking at the mountain, and then an image of how it looks in, well, in New York in the fall, I don't know what season that would be for you, when the leaves change color, and it's really beautiful. But then you drop that, and you see the mountain. And then you have a memory of when you were hiking one time and you just, you fell in love with trees or a person for the first time and then you drop that. Which is really what we've all been doing all week, right? But the tricky part is, mountains are walking. Nothing stays the same. You're not the same person you were five minutes ago when you were sitting in meditation. So to the extent that there are stages, this stage is never finished. It just, it can't possibly be. Because we're always needing to see it clearly and simply for what it is. And what it is, is constantly changing. And we need to keep going beyond our ideas of the mountain as solid. Yourself as a solid, fixed personality. In order to see it simply and clearly for what it is without any symbolism. <coughs> you are not you in the way that you think you are most of the time. Mountains are not mountains in the ways that you think of them most of the time. And you can't use your mind to figure any of that out. <laughs> <coughs> it's the moment as a koan. There's a story that Michael told us when we were studying in Toronto in the spring, which was about two friends of his who are um, passionate about biking, advocates for uh, all things biking. And there is in Toronto this street that runs and Rose can tell you later the name, if you need to know the name. I don't remember it. Um, that runs a great long distance across the width of the city, and it's used by motorists and by cyclists and by pedestrians to, to traverse and commute. But the government, in its wisdom, only put a bike lane in half of it, and it didn't traverse the whole. So, like, their bikes were protected, protected, and then they're, like, battling the cars again. And bikers, especially this couple that Michael knew, was like... There should be a bike lane here, and they were advocating for that. Uh, and then one night, it was late at night, and they had been drinking. They decided it would be a great idea to go grab some paint, <laughs> paint in the bike lane, which they did. And they went to bed. Um, and when everyone got up the next night, or next morning, the line was like all like this, like a misshapen 
bike, and then the government came later that day and covered it up. <laughs> um, but they were really passionate about this. And so they decided that they would actually maybe do some research and take some time and really be mindful and put some effort into it. And they figured out the exact color paint that the DOT actually uses. They created a stencil for the exact shape that actually the, the biker shape is in. And then again, another night, in the middle of the night, they went out and redrew the end of the bike lane, but this time really well. And I went to bed, and I got up in the morning, and there was the new bike lane. And the government didn't paint over it. And it's still there now. <laughs> And so uh, there was all this passionate and wise and sober work <laughs> that was done underneath the level of the government. And then that was done, and then the, it just shifted the government. It made its way up. And so then can we be doing all of this work that's below the level of the organizing, budgeting, planning, fixing, doing government minds? Eventually, it will catch up. And then the second part of the teaching naturally arises, and you don't even need any wine, although Bordeaux has amazing wine. <laughs> and I think the line from the Li Po poem describes it best. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So now, the mountain is not a mountain, and waters are not waters. And this can last for a moment or two, or for several days, and you're moving in and out of it. And for me, like I described a few days ago, it always has this feeling of like a deep, wide heart with love at the foundation of it. And it's wide, and there's unity at the same time, and it sounds like a paradox to talk about it, but when you actually experience it, it's just what's happening. And it arises when we can see that we're all just arriving. We're just arriving right now. We're all just becoming in this moment. We're all in process. None of us are finished. Just like the mountains and rivers. But when we see someone as done, as arrived, as who they are, when we see mountains as solid, that's when stories start to stick to them. So if they're finished, and put them in a box and describe them. And that's when intimacy gaps widen and when suffering starts to occur. So when we can see ourselves and others in the world around us as constantly arriving, gate gate, we're uniting and we're widening and there are no mountains and there are no rivers. What's tricky here, what stops us, is of course often fear. Because that's like, that's crazy. 
it can be so beautiful, but also scary. Uh, and so this is a poem where Gary Snyder, I feel, describes that a bit. And it's called The Earth's Wild Spaces. And it's also talking about our wild spaces. Your eyes, your mouth, and hands, the public highways. Hands like truck stops, semis rumbling in the corners. Eyes like bank clerks' windows, foreign exchange. I love all the parts of your body. Friends hug your suburbs. Farmlands are given a nod. But I know the path to your wilderness. It's not that I like it best, but we're almost always alone there. And it's scary, but also calm. I'm going to reread the last part. I know the path to your wilderness. It's not that I like it best, but we're almost always alone there. And it's scary, but also calm. Which is exactly what it's like to be in the wilderness. And I think exactly what it's like to be in our own wilderness. That we are on a path to this wilderness of our own beings. And it's not that it's better or best than any other aspect of ourselves. But we can really be alone with ourselves without all the other added extra layers and things, without adding ideas on top of ideas. And it's scary, but also calm. Which is why we cultivate a body and a breath that we can trust. Which is why, again and again, as we're giving instructions in the Zendo, that's primarily all that we're talking about. Not that that's the only thing about the path or meditation or instructions that we would give, but that's so important because when you get to the calm, scary place, if you can remember that you have a body then breath that you can trust and can be in tune with that while in the calm and scary place, you can feel grounded. And then you're like, this is fun. Okay, this is fun. It's why it's so important to be grounded in beneficial habits, in good sleep, in good food, in good companionship, to be grounded in all the values that we agreed upon together here the first night, on harming, honesty, on stealing, wise use of sexual energy, non-numbing ourselves. Alan Wallace, who is a Buddhist scholar and practitioner, has said, The foundation of all Buddhist practice, and without which there is no Buddhist practice, is ethics. A very fine sense of ethics is necessary for developing this contemplative technology of mind that can make very careful, precise, and deep investigations. You're going to go into the scary, calm wilderness. You bring 
flashlight or anti-bear spray. <laughs> um, if you go rock climbing, you take a rope up with you. Unless you're that really famous climber that is in the news all the time. If you care about climbing. Um, or you take an oxygen tank on your back when you go scuba diving. What enables you to explore your scary, calm, beautiful, fun wilderness? Um, there actually even have been studies that have shown um, a higher correlation between high scores on measures of being mindful with higher importance of ethical behavior. So that the more you have one, the more you have the other. And I think that's because when we're paying attention to ethics, we're mindful all day long. So we're paying attention to how we're behaving in a moment-to-moment -moment way. We never separate from the practice. Um, on retreat, it becomes a little bit easier to do this. Um, so a practice of taking that a little bit further that I often like to think about is... Um, thinking of the teaching of doing everything with two hands. For me, that's sort of an ethics practice that I try to do when I'm on retreat, which doesn't always mean that they're doing the same thing, like you're like holding your fork. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that you're really aware of what both hands are doing at the same time. Uh, many years ago, I was um, an English as a second language teacher for adults. Not all, but most of the students I worked with were from Asian countries. And they would always, whenever they had to hand me papers, they would always hand me with two hands. Um, and I noticed that at the time. But um, now I wish I had really appreciated it a little bit more. Uh, so I try to do that on retreat. I try to really do things with two hands. And I remember a teaching Michael gave us one time on retreat as assistants was to try to carry less things in our hands. Um, because we always have to carry lots of stuff in our hands. We have to like hold notes and schedules and water for Michael and extra cushions for people. We have like really busy bodhisattva hands as assistants on retreats. Um, but he was like, try to carry less things so that we can actually bring our both hands together to bow to meet people or so that we can walk with our hands and she show when we're just walking around. Um, which, if that sounds nice, you can maybe try. Um, uniting rather than dividing. So when mountains are not mountains arises, imprint it, remember how that feels, and then as the Lojong says, don't get stuck on peace. This is really just an intermediary stage. It's just creating the ground for what comes next. Khalil Gibran, uh, who wrote The Prophet, uh, in the section called On Freedom, said, For you can only be free when even the desire of seeking freedom becomes a harness to you. And when you cease to speak of freedom as a goal, and a fulfillment. So then we basically loop back to the first part 
where now we have this extra thing to drop off of the moment. Dropping off peace, dropping off freedom, dropping that off. And still just staying with what is without even that. What's that like? I don't know. And then mountains are mountains again. And we're practicing the ordinary. And this is where you embody it. It flows through you into each activity of walking, sitting, cleaning, bowing, eating. And I found sometimes that this is the hardest part of the teaching. Not in the journey getting there. We've done all of this stuff. And then moving through, completing it all the way, trust is required that you can be the one that does that. Often we get all the way there, and then something holds us back. And initially, and for a while, it's, it's habit. There's a way that we embody ourselves, right? And so that we kind of knock up against our habit for a while. But eventually because we're practicing, that fades away, but still, we don't go through off it. There's some feeling of not being ready. There's some feeling of maybe not being good enough, not worthy enough. And recognizing that there's actually a lot of trust required for this teaching to enact and embody fully. Um, when I was doing that looking over of my notes that I mentioned, um, I remembered but also forgot just how much I've struggled on retreats with feelings of worthiness, of being good enough, of being liked, of belonging on retreat. It was all residue of being younger, sort of high school stuff. Um... But as a yoga and meditation teacher, I basically got to skip over that work. <laughs> because as a yoga teacher and as a meditation teacher, like, I belong there. Like, who else is going to be the one that belongs there? And people tend to really like you. Often. Unless. <laughs> That's not always true, I guess. <laughs> but it's a job that lends itself to skipping over really having to confront those feelings. But retreats, being with so many people in a different context as adults was just like, nope, you've got to go back through that. And I think we often worry about the idea of spiritual bypassing, which gets talked about a lot, right? Where we use our practice kind of intentionally to skip over feeling things and just trying to get to a place of, of just good or feeling peace. But I think that there's actually a lot of incidental accidental skipping over that happens just because of our life. Our life is not going to take us through, straight through, all the work that we need to do. Our life doesn't magically know that. That's why we need a practice. And there are work gaps. There are maybe relationship gaps, things that you skipped over based on when you did or didn't get married. There are location gaps, things that you skipped over based on places that you chose to live, where your life took you. 
and retreat is very often, I'll say, an opportunity, although it doesn't often feel like you have a choice to go back and through. <clears throat> and that's usually where the holding back is happening. We're holding back from going through that stuff. So how are you holding back? We all do that in some way. Where are we waiting for someone to tell us that we are worthy or that we are ready? It was a lot that I was waiting for Michael to tell me I was ready for or waiting um, to do. I really wanted him to. He never told me any of them ever. <laughs> um, but somehow, through the teachings, though, I got there on my own. And it was so much more valuable to have arrived and understood that I was ready through myself, through his specific way of prodding, rather than if he had just been like, Jen, you are now a Dharma teacher. <laughs> right? So don't wait. And when we finally realize we have everything we need and are already there, and we can trust ourselves, we fully cross over into the ordinary life. It's ordinary, simple, moment-to-moment -moment life, and it's not different than the life that you had before, but how you express it changes. And that's pretty much it. This is another poem. It's called The Abnormal Is Not Courage by Jack Gilbert. The Poles rode out from Warsaw against the German tanks on horses. Rode knowing, in sunlight, with sabers. A magnitude of beauty that allows me no peace. And yet, this poem would lessen it. Question that bravery. Say it's not courage. Call it a passion. Would say courage isn't that. Not at its best. It was impossible and with form. They wrote in sunlight. Or mangled. But I say courage is not the abnormal. Not the marvelous act. Not Macbeth with fine speeches. The worthless can manage in public or for the moment. It is too near the horror's heart, the bounty of impulse, and the failure to sustain even small kindness. Not the marvelous act, but the evident conclusion of being. Not strangeness, but a leap forward of the same quality accomplishment, the even loyalty, but fresh. Not the prodigal son, nor Faustus, but Penelope. The thing steady and clear. Then the crescendo, the real form, the culmination, and the exceeding. Not the surprise. The amazed understanding. The marriage 
not the month's rapture, not the exception, the beauty that is of many days, steady and clear. It is the normal excellence of long accomplishment. And I would add, not the drunken bike lanes, the thoughtful, mindful, careful diligence. It takes courage to thread all of this through into the ordinary life, to not hold back, to let it saturate out into your limbs and move through you. The first goal is to see the thing itself, in and for itself, to see it simply and clearly for what it is. No symbolism, please. The second goal is to see each individual thing as unified, as one with all the other 10,000 things. In this regard, a little wine helps a lot. The third goal is to grasp the first and the second goals, to see the universal and the particular simultaneously. Regarding this one, call me when you get it. Ram Das talks a lot about the universal and the particular at the same time. And when he talks about it, he usually gives the story of if you're walking and somebody falls to the ground in front of you, the no mountain, the universal, is that you see that it's all perfect, that this is the way it is, that people fall, that there's suffering, that we can learn from it, that it's not a tragedy. The mountain is that you stop and help them up. The best experience of that I've had, which is embarrassing but true. Uh, so you should know that the subways in New York City, the turnstiles, <coughs> when you leave the subway, you don't have to do anything, you just walk into them and they turn. When you enter the subway, you have to swipe your card in order to unlock them and they'll turn. I was in a rush heading into the subway, completely distracted. <laughs> I forgot to swipe my card and just went right into the turnstile and then like fell back. And then this guy who was just sailed right through by me called kind of back over his shoulder. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> and just kept going. <laughs> Which is perfect, right? Because if we get too much in the mountain and stopping, then we're like, oh, are you okay? Like, or whatever. And that would, that's so embarrassing, right? It just makes it kind of worse when you do something like that. Um, and he also didn't just breeze by and say nothing, right? It was like the perfect immediate response. So I want to end with an excerpt from a poem by Jane Hirschfield called When Your Life Looks Back. And I was thinking that as I read it, it's really short. It'll get louder because of the rain. 
would I'll pause because they're amazing Zendo caretaker bodhisattvas are making sure we don't get that. by Jane Hirschfield. It's from a longer poem called When Your Life Looks Back. And I was thinking uh, for the, the first run through, we can all close our eyes so we can really feel it. When your life looks back as it will at itself, at you, what will it say? This, your life had said, its only pronoun. Here, your life had said, its only house. Let, your life had said, its only order. So short. This, here, let. It's like the whole teaching in three words. When your life looks back, as it will, at itself, at you, what will it say? This, your life had said, its only pronoun. Here, your life had said, its only house. Let, your life had said, its only order. Thank you.